You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Out of all the 12, he was the youngest, and nobody really listened to him. That's kind of how little brothers go, least of all the big guys. They never really listened to him. But he was there at the start. He was one of the first people to hear Jesus' call. He was one of the first to feel the net drop from his fingers, the first to follow this Messiah. And he may have kept things to himself back then, making little side comments here or there, because little brothers can kind of be that way. But in the half-light of that after Easter morning, the youngest disciple, John, drops us into this beautiful spellbinding scene, and he raises a very timely, thoughtful, and provocative question that is just as meaningful today as it was then, and I imagine it's something that you may be even feeling this morning. If Jesus is supposed to be enough, why do I feel so insecure? Because here's the thing, most of us this morning, whether you're watching as a member of the North Canton Chapel or this just showed up in your Facebook feed, most of us this morning are dealing with a sense of loss, aren't we? We've lost our rhythm. We've lost our sense of time. As a church, we've lost our ability, this gift to gather together. We've lost a warm cup of coffee, a warm smile from a friend, a casual conversation in a hallway. It seems like life has become like this Christmas tree with nothing underneath it where the gifts are supposed to be. And all we're left is this space full of emptiness. And if you're like me, that ache has pushed you to ask some really tough questions. Namely, do I really believe that Jesus is enough? Because these days, he's all that I feel like I have. Everything else is off the table, right? Well, not quite. Because when security leaves, the security of rhythm, the security of place, when all that leaves, it doesn't take long for something else to fill its place. Example, Last week, I heard that since March 15th, the last month or so, online pornography subscriptions in the U.S. are up 24%. Alcohol sales in the U.S. shot up 55%. Online, it's over 200%. We are lonelier and more afraid than ever, and we are running to anything that can soothe us. And all of that data just points to one undeniable reality. We are made for security, but the tension is still there. If Jesus is supposed to be enough, why do I feel so insecure? So if you're just joining us this week, um, or if you remember where we were last week, this is the second week in our four-week teaching series called Like Fire, an up-close and personal look into the life of the early church. And here's the idea. We make a really big deal out of Easter, don't we? I mean, we are Easter people. We are resurrection people. It represents Jesus' triumph over death in all its forms. It's a reminder that life wins out over darkness and that Christ is victorious. Easter gives us hope when all we want to do is throw in the towel and give up. We live in the light of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection and in the hope of our own. But here's the thing. We're missing the point. If we think Easter was the end, if that was the goal, if that was the climax, the highlight, Easter is actually the beginning of the story. It's the fuse that lights the fire. 
And so Jesus' movement starts on Easter morning and explodes through the first century world like a wildfire out of control. And just like fire, life in the early church is both dangerous and powerful. Following Jesus, then and now, is a decision that ignites, sustains, warms, and moves believers in some really incredible ways. But here's the thing that I want us to focus on this morning. Following Jesus is always about one question, security. Where is our security? And so this morning, I want to visit another scene from life just after Easter. Jesus has risen. The disciples have seen him. The movement has started. The grave is empty. The authorities are panicked. And the world is ready. But on a misty morning, on a familiar sea, seven men, Jesus' closest friends, are about ready to give up. And the youngest disciple, John, invites us to a beachside campfire where he wants to teach us that security isn't about what you do. It's who Jesus is. Security isn't what you do. It's who Jesus is. And so again, before we dig into this compelling scene, we need to get a bit of context, a little bit of frame building to know who we're talking about and and why his gospel is so important. So first off, who was John. So tradition holds that the Gospel of John was written by a guy named John. You guessed it. The only trouble is there's three major characters named John in the New Testament. So if you're new to reading your Bible, um, I want to kind of clear this up and just help us think about this rightly. So the first John that we're introduced to is John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin, and he actually is a prophet who paves the way for the ministry of Jesus. The second John that we're introduced to is John the Disciple. Now, he is, along with his brother James, employed in their dad's fishing business. He's likely the younger of the two brothers because he's always mentioned second. Now, these two guys together, James and John, probably added um, a bit of headstrong element to the group of disciples because Jesus called them the sons of thunder. So that's the second John. We've got this third John, though, a guy named John Mark. So to make things even more complicated, this third one actually has two names. Now, John Mark was a traveling companion of Paul and Peter, um, and he actually wrote the first gospel account of Jesus' life. We know it as the Gospel of Mark. So which one of these three wrote the Gospel of John? Well, it's the second one, the disciple, the fisherman. And that's really important because all throughout his gospel, we're given a firsthand look at Jesus. This is someone who was there when Jesus healed the blind man, and then he thought about it. This is someone who saw Jesus in the boat, calmed the storm, and then he meditated over it. This author knew what the light looked like in Jesus' eyes when he taught, and he knew how his voice carried over the waters. John wrote his gospel with the wisdom of a deep thinker, but the heart of a close friend. And so John gives us these insightful, meaningful details that cause us to think about Jesus deeply. John's is a very thoughtful gospel, and so while Matthew, Mark, and Luke love to tell details around what Jesus did, how it happened, what he said, John loves to talk about what all of that means. And so it's a very significant, heavy gospel. If Jesus' life was like a diamond, John loves to just keep turning it and turning it, letting each ray of sun catch it, and he looks at it and he studies it, reflecting. So who's John writing to? Well, unlike Matthew, who we heard from on Easter, John isn't writing to a particular ethnic group. Unlike Luke, who we heard from last week, John's not writing to a specific patron. John's audience is less clear, but here's a helpful clue. 
Out of all the 12 disciples, John lived the longest. And interestingly, he was the only one to die a natural death. The rest died as martyrs. John spent most of his life in and around the area where Jesus ministered, so the Galilee Judea region. Eventually, as an old man, he pastored a church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus might ring a bell for you. There's a book in the New Testament called Ephesians uh, because Paul actually spent some time in Ephesus. So it's here in Ephesus as an old man with a life of ministry behind him that John writes his gospel. He also writes three other letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then also the book of Revelation. And being so well known in his old age, John's audience would have been really big. His appeal would have been really wide because he had really deep authority. It would be like if you got wind of the fact that Paul McCartney was going to release a new biography on John Lennon. Everybody would be interested in what this guy has to say. So, third thing before we get into the text. Why is he writing? What's John's purpose? Now, this one's actually really clear because it comes right from the pages of his gospel, and it plays right into where we're headed this morning. So our text today is going to be John 21, but I want to give you a couple of verses right before that because you'll see something that almost feels like a false ending of the gospel, but it gives John this really cool opportunity to say, hey, here's what I'm writing about. So here's what he says. This is John 20, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So did you catch it? There's two reasons. That you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. Now, that's what John is all about. In a first century pagan world with gods on every corner where knowing something for sure is just as elusive as like placing your best bet and where life is like this constant nauseating endless and empty one day after another, John wants to shine the light on one person who makes all the difference. And he says, here, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He makes all the difference. He's the source of a meaningful life. You cannot really live without Jesus. Now, quick personal aside. God used the Gospel of John in my life in a really big way. When I was 17, um, I realized that I did not know the Jesus that I claimed to worship. Um, I had a Bible, I went to church, I was active, and people would say I was a Christian. I would say I was a Christian, but one thing that was true about me in that point in my life was it was like this hollow shell where I acted one way and believed something else, and I had this veneer of life, and life was not very fulfilling for me in those years. And so I stumbled, kind of coincidentally, into John 10.10, where John quotes Jesus and he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And that was like the bomb that blew apart my hard heart, the idea of a full, meaningful life. And so this idea that life really full, rich, beautiful, purposeful, deep, only exists with Jesus is very real for me personally. And so I can't wait to invite you into this text this morning. So all that brings us to this scene, this last scene in John's gospel, where John wants us to see that security isn't what you do. It's who Jesus is. So with all that, John 21, let's take a look in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, 
and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, there are several things we've got to see here, um, and I want to take them in order because they kind of set the stage for where we're going to go. It's a little bit of a teaser. So first off, the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. Now, we do this stuff all the time. Cleveland Avenue is Main Street is Canton Road, right? Depending on where you are, who you're talking to, or even where you're going, you might call it something else. So the Sea of Galilee was also known as the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Gennesaret, but it was the hub around which so much of Jesus's ministry happened. Um, it's this pretty big area of about 65 square miles, and its shape is kind of is oblong, almost like a stretched out oval. And so the best way to picture it for us today is if you could imagine like our five big school districts. So like Lake up here going down into Hoover, North Canton, into down into Plain, over to Perry, and then up into Jackson, this kind of area like that. That's what we're talking about. It's pretty big. Now, this was familiar territory for Peter and these six other guys that are with him. This is the shore from which Jesus called Peter, Andrew, and James, and John three years earlier. This was the storm-tossed sea that Jesus calmed with his word. Interestingly, this is the same sea where Peter walked on and eventually sank in. Mary Magdalene was from near here. Here's the point. Sometimes what's most familiar is actually the least helpful. Second thing I want us to see, Peter says, the only thing he says in this entire narrative, he says, I'm going fishing. Fishing was to Galilee what football is to Canton. It's what this place was known for. So place names like Bethsaida and Terracre meant house of fish and fish town, right? This is a big deal. Fish from the Galilee region would have been packed, dried, preserved, and exported all throughout the Roman world. It was basically their main commercial export. And so when Peter says, I'm going fishing, he might as well be saying, I'm going home to watch the playoffs, Remember what playoffs were? Those are a great memory, right? And he says, look, I'm going out here and doing this. You get the nachos, you get the wings, let's show up. This is what we're going to do. Now, Peter's the main character in this whole narrative, but those are the only words he says. What's the point? Sometimes what's most familiar is actually what's least helpful. Last thing, and it's a detail that you might have caught. Um, it's a small detail. I didn't catch it until I was studying for this message this week. The text says they went out and got into the boat. Not a boat, but the boat. The boats that most fishermen used in this time were 27 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 4 feet deep. It was like the size of a school bus. And so when John writes, they got into the boat, most scholars believe that's John's way of saying Peter's boat. This boat belonged to Peter. Now, here's why that's interesting. Peter had been following Jesus for three years. It had been three years since he left the fishing business. Three years since he dropped the net through his fingers and followed Jesus. Three years of following him around, hearing his teaching, seeing him heal the blind. Three years of everything that Jesus was about. A front row seat to the kingdom. But when it all comes crashing down after the cross and after the confusion of what do we do, and all his security starts to crumble, and all the certainty evaporates like a morning mist, Peter falls back into what's most comfortable. 
It's like he's back from college, opens the garage door, pulls off the canvas, and there's his old car, just like he left it. Life picks up just where it left off. What's the point? Sometimes what's most familiar is actually what's least helpful. And maybe I'm being tough on Peter. I get that. But I'm the same way, and so are you. We love contingency plans, don't we? We love to have a backup, a plan B, a safety net. We resist risk because risk demands that we learn a lesson that we do not want to learn. It's like, okay, Jesus, either I'm going to trust you with this thing and you're going to figure it out or I'm going to do it myself. And here's the thing. You know those stats I read earlier? Porn subscriptions up and alcohol sales up and all that. All those are are the metrics of a culture saying, I have found a way to get through this crisis. This will be my Jesus. And you and I, we can pick a thousand and one cul-de-sac saviors that lead us nowhere, and you know it. This little snippet of Peter heading back to the boat. This is so painful because we do it every day. We exchange the hard road of faith for the easy road of sight. We give up the adventure of following Jesus for the predictability of following ourselves. We exchange the wisdom of Jesus' leadership for the short-sightedness of self-leadership. It's so tragic because we do it. It's this slow defection of a heart that was almost there. And don't you love John's little note there? Like, this is such a little brother comment because he just goes, And all that night, they caught nothing. Really? Four professional fishermen and three of their best friends. At the end of April, this would have been prime time. It's easy to imagine, isn't it? Like looking around the lake that night, they see their friends' boats hauling up their catch, and then they check their net. Nothing. Their friends, their neighbors, maybe even past business competitors, and then they check their net. Nothing. They try a new spot. They follow the current. They watch the wind. They look at the waves. They check their net. Nothing. Tell me you don't know exactly what that feels like. You manipulate all the forces that you can, everything at your disposal. Nothing. You try to call on your old skills, right? But that doesn't work. Nothing. You try and pray a prayer. You read a book. You forward an email. You like a Facebook post. Nothing. Isn't it interesting how the first step towards security is admitting our inability? Hold on to that for a minute. So why is Peter out here? I think it's because he wants to remember what it's like to be good at something. He's got three denials hanging over his head back here from two weeks ago. That kind of thing just doesn't go away. He was the leader of a group of men that were going to change the world, and now he's fuming at fish. Sure, Peter saw the empty grave. He was there. He was there in the room when Jesus appeared with the others. But you want to know the last private conversation that Jesus and Peter had together, at least according to John? It was two weeks ago in the upper room. And Peter says, Jesus, I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, really? Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me, Peter. And those words echo around in Peter's mind for the last two weeks. In his own mind, he is a complete failure. He's let down his friends, he's let down his Messiah, and now he can't even fish. So much for familiarity. But as we'll see, security is not what you do. It's who Jesus is. So let's keep going. Verse 4. Here's where things really heat up. This is great. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You never ask a fisherman if he's caught any fish. If he does, you will find out sooner rather than later. And if he hasn't yet, that only makes things worse, and you irritate him. Hence, Peter's response, they answer him, no. <laughs> and again, what's with Jesus and the questions? This was last week. It's the same thing. Again, Jesus never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. Jesus asks questions because he wants us to see something that we do not want to see. In Peter's case, it's his complete inability to bring the result that he wants, fish. <laughs> proof of security, proof of confidence, proof of ability. And guys, we cannot miss this. Jesus has just pushed Peter into a conversation about his identity, his ability, and security, and Peter doesn't even know it. He's, he thinks that this stranger, just like last week, is there for one purpose, to irritate him. But Jesus masterfully, beautifully, and subversively lays out the real issue behind this whole fishless night. If Jesus is enough, why do I feel so insecure? And so we've got to stop here again for a minute because there's this principle nestled in this first exchange that we've got to acknowledge. Coming to grips with my inability to bring my own security always irritates first. <laughs> Why is that? I think it's just because we're human. We are born with this innate idea that we are the security bringers. We are the ones to make sure we're safe. And because every one of you watching this morning has been hurt by somebody in the past, we have, over the course of our lives, constructed this subtle and dangerous belief that we have the ability. But here's the thing. You know exactly how thin your walls are, and you know exactly how heavy that burden is to carry, and you know exactly how much you are hurting this morning. But if you're like me, you are way more interested in preserving your pride than admitting your inability. Peter's been nursing a wound at the core of his soul. And knowing Peter, it's got cracks that go way deeper down than just two weeks ago. But now, with one question, he is primed for the master to work. Do you have any fish? No. Now watch how the scene unfolds. Verse 5. They answered him, no. And he said to them, now get this, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, kind of a, kind of a sly way of, of talking about himself, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Such a Peter move. I love it. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, about a hundred yards off. So a question, a strange command, maybe a reluctant move to obey, like, okay, let's see what this guy knows. Throw it over the right. Oh my goodness, a full net. And then it clicks. John gives us the impression that he was the first one to make the connection, which isn't surprising because John is the thoughtful one. But true to form, Peter is the first one to act on it, like easy there, turbo. But off he goes. John gives us an interesting detail. He says that before diving into the water, they were about 100 yards off from shore, so the depth at that point in the sea would have only been about shoulder depth, so not too deep. Peter puts his outer garment on. Now what's that about? In Jewish culture, when you go to meet with an authority figure, you go with your best dress. 
It's kind of like the ancient equivalent of straightening your tie. And so by Peter actually putting on his outer garment before he jumps in the lake, this is him saying, that's my Lord, and that's my Savior, and that's my authority, which is a pretty big step for impetuous Peter. And it's not hard to see what motivates him to this like crazy act. He had professed undying loyalty to the master in the upper room, and then that loyalty fell through. Now he has the opportunity to redeem himself, right? Which when you think about it, self-redemption is the first thing Peter wants, and it's the last thing Peter needs. Peter needs to receive something. But here's what's amazing about this scene. It's happened before. This isn't the first time this has played out. This happened three years ago. John doesn't record it, but Luke does. Listen to this. This is Luke 5. It says, On one occasion, while with the crowd, or with the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, that is Jesus, standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's the same lake, he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, get this, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Sound familiar? But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. What is that about? Same water, same boat, same men, same miracle. So bookending the life of these fishermen with Jesus, these fishermen turned followers, is this picture of this miraculous catch of fish. It's like Jesus is trying to say, Peter, 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 it's the same now as it was back then. Peter, do you remember where your faith started and do you see where your faith has progressed? You left everything for me. Do not go back. Peter's security isn't what you do. It's who I am. Now, before we get to this last scene, we got to drop something else on us. I hinted at it just a little bit ago, and I'm going to tell you this is so true in my life. It's scary, and it's consistently true in my life. It's one of the things that God keeps trying to teach me, and it's so hard to learn. And so I'm willing to bet you might be the same. Here it is. There is nothing harder than learning how to receive there is nothing harder than learning how to receive. I want to be the one who catches the fish. And in my case, that's a personal and timely comment. I want to be the one who fixes the problem. Because we say things like this all the time. I want to be the one who can fix this. I want to be the one who makes this right. I want to be the one who gets this done. I'm the only one who can clean this thing up, who can figure this out, who can do this the right way, who can keep this together. I want to heal myself. I want to provide for myself. I want to set my own direction. I want to do all this. And all that those sentiments reveal is I would rather, leave, I would rather preserve my pride and quietly give myself the glory than to ask for help, receive the help from God, and then say thank you. Each one of those is just a soft way of saying, hey, God, I got this under control. Step off. I will take it from here. <laughs> but guys, here's the gospel. Nothing worth doing gets accomplished without Jesus. So why do you want the credit? Where is the good in me hoisting the trophy above my shoulders? You're good, but you're not God, so stop trying to be God. 
We don't catch the fish. We just say thank you. And what is worship other than just a thousand holy thank yous for God's goodness that he shows us in his provision that he gives us? And maybe that's why worship, like real worship, beyond the music stuff, that's why worship is such a strange language for so many people because as soon as God gives me something that I know that I need and I don't deserve, I'm instantly made aware of two things. One, I'm instantly made aware of the fact that he is profoundly good to me and I don't have a problem with that because we really love the idea of a good God. But then the second thing is I'm instantly aware of my need. Whoa, like I don't like to see that, but I have to see it. A few weeks ago, we said that God's people always win when we relearn how to trust our shepherd. Here's another one. God's people always win when we trade our pride for dependence. Security is not what you do. Security is who Jesus is. So what did these guys do next? Verse 9. Here we go. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come, have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So there's so much amazing stuff going on here, right? How did Jesus get the fish? It's a great flashback, feed the 5,000 much, right? And again, Jesus takes bread and breaks it and gives it to them. Like, doesn't that just sound like the Last Supper and the Emmaus dinner last week? And why wasn't the net torn? Like, that's such a great provision that Jesus gives them through the whole experience. But here's the question that I want to throw your way, and it's right at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw, they saw a charcoal fire in place. When was the last time that Peter smelled charcoal smoke? Do you remember? It was just a little while ago. Let me read it to you. This is from John 18. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. And so here we are two weeks later. As the smoke from a beachside campfire drifts in his nostrils and hovers in the morning mist, Peter's imagination is jolted. His anxiety peaks and his pulse races, but he is ready for the master to work. Do you think that Jesus is trying to teach Peter something about security? Here's why that little detail about a charcoal fire matters for us this morning, outside of an interesting literary device. <laughs> When Jesus wants to teach you about security, he's going to drive you to the root of your unbelief, make you look at it and see it in all its ugliness, and then he begins the healing process. And just getting personal, I don't like that. I wish that is not how healing happened, but that's always how healing happens for Jesus. It's where we've got to go. I know that in order to be healed, I must be broken first. And in these times that we live in, don't you feel the breaking? I know that in order to be rebuilt, I must be wrecked first. And don't you feel the wrecking ball swinging? 
over and over and over again. It's the scourging of the soul, this dredging up of the deep depths of my heart. It's this close look, the invasive examination, and every one of us are naturally inclined to resist it. But beneath all that fear, there's Jesus asking, do you trust me? Security isn't what you do, it's who Jesus is. And so, before we wrap up here in a minute, I want to pull the bottom of the next page up just a little bit, just to get a peek. I know verse 14 is where the text naturally ends, but the scene spills over into another conversation. So I want to just lift the corner and let the glow of this morning pull us just a bit further because Jesus asks Peter another question that really gets to the heart of it. And here it is in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these? And here's why that's such a fascinating question. What are the these that Jesus points to? Your first answer, like mine, might be to think of the disciples, right? Because they're right there. And so if you take that reading, Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these guys do? Which may make sense at first, but here's the only problem with that. Jesus just got done breaking up a popularity contest a few days earlier, right? You remember James and John? They say, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand? We love you more, Jesus. We're, we're with you, right? And Jesus corrects them and says, you guys, you're missing the point. This isn't about who loves me the most. And so I don't think Jesus here on the beach with Peter wants to resurrect this idea of a popularity contest, trying to figure out who loves him the most. And so if it's not about the disciples... What else could it be? Do you love me more than these? What else is on the beach? A boat, a net, and a pile of fish. That's all that's there. And so what's Jesus really asking Peter? Peter, do you love me more than all this false sense of security that you can build around yourself? Peter, will you let me be your security? Taken this way, Jesus is challenging Peter to reevaluate his entire future in the midst of a crisis. Can you relate to that? I sure can. How do you want this life to roll, Peter? Are you the one or am I the one? You gotta choose. I'm not gonna tell you how Peter responds because you can go back and read that one later on your own. But for now, just know that Peter answered in the best way possible. And next week, next week, you're gonna get a vision of Peter that would have never happened if Jesus hadn't asked him that question. Do you love me more than these? Security is not about what you do. Security is who Jesus is. So as we wrap up, um, I, had, I had a couple of kind of, you know, questions I was going to ask you or a couple little tips that I've written down here, but I'm going to take a little bit different of a, of a tack. Um, I just want to ask you kind of one question just to, to reflect on this, because I think these are days that are naturally bent toward a little self-reflection. Um, so here you go. If you resonate with Peter at all, which Peter are you? Are you the Peter who just met Jesus on the shore and you just dropped the net. Jesus is brand new to you. Are you the upper room Peter who's like on fire for, for God and saying, okay, God, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Jesus, I'm all in. I'm undying loyalty. I'm all yours. Are you the Peter who just denied Jesus? And like, maybe you're going, man, I'm, I'm looking at a giant mistake in my life that I'm the only one who knows about. And I feel like I'm a failure. 
Maybe you're the Peter here in John 21 and you're overwhelmed and you're ready to quit. And I get that. And most importantly, Jesus gets that. All of those feelings make total sense to Jesus. And so you don't need to apologize for those. What you need to do is invite him in to say, okay, Jesus, help me understand this thing and help me learn to believe that you are enough. It's that same cry that the gospel says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And my word for you is that Jesus is enough. And here's the deal. That's the whole point of preaching. It's the whole point of these gatherings that we get together virtually online once a week. And then even throughout the week, we don't do this just to learn some interesting facts about Jesus or to keep things going or just to make sure that the lights stay on here at North Canton Chapel or anything like that. We do this for one reason alone, is to lift up the sufficiency of Jesus in a world of counterfeit cul-de-sac saviors that lead nowhere. And we say, this one is enough and you can hang all your hope on him. He is worthy of worship. And so if you're looking for security, again, if you're a regular member here at the North Canton Chapel, and you've been watching every week, you know how we do things here. But if this just showed up on your feed, and and maybe you've never been a part of what we do here, here's the deal. We make much of Jesus every day to everyone. That is the heartbeat of our church. It's the heartbeat that we all share because I really believe it's rooted in the gospel. Yes, Jesus is enough. You were designed for security. You were designed for him. So let me pray for us. Father, these are insecure times. And this is good to know even right now, you don't shame us for feeling insecure. If anything, you want to come alongside us and you invite us closer to you. Jesus, when you said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Just think about that. All of us with burdens on our backs, all of us who are tired. Jesus, you don't go, "Mm, shame on you. You say, come on. Come closer. So Jesus, we want to stop here and just say that we love you. You are good. You are enough. You are sufficient. And you are worthy of all of our worship. So bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.